As you know, last month we went through very rapidly, in fact, the book of Haggai, and uh, reviewed some of those things that we saw there about four years ago at this time. That was in February of 96, and added a few points, I'm sure. But today we go into Zechariah, and I do it with somewhat of a trepidation, because there are some things in Zechariah that have been very enigmatic for a long time. But when it is understood in the context of the church, I think a lot of it is beginning to clear up. The name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. And my question here, and how this fits with the context of the Minor Prophets is, will he remember his people, or will he forget us? And the book of Zechariah gives a great deal of detail about the church today. That's basically what the book is about. Uh, it culminates in the return of Christ, but basically it's talking about the church today. Now, Zechariah was a very young man when he began his prophecies. He had been born in Babylon, and he was both a priest and a prophet, as were Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Here's an interesting comment. I don't like quotes from commentaries, but this is only one sentence long, so maybe you can focus on it. This is from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Zechariah unfolds in great detail the glorious future in connection with the depressed appearance of the theocracy and its visible symbol, the temple or the church. So even the commentators recognize that Zechariah is not just writing to the physical nations of Israel, but he is addressing the church in specific. And we will see in the context of Zechariah, as it comes out of Haggai, that this is a very true assessment. Now, if you will recall, by way of review here for a moment, Haggai showed the lackadaisical attitude the church as a whole today has toward building the temple, or the church back, restoring it. He indicts us for being busy with our own lives and interests. He warns us to consider our ways and get busy with his project. We saw there as well that he will stir two leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua, along with the faithful remnant of the church to rebuild the temple of God in a far more glorious form than we experienced under Herbert W. Armstrong. And in this place also he will bring peace, he says. Then he concludes the book by saying, once this is done, he will shake the world. So the setting of Haggai is of the building of the latter temple out of the scattered church that we see falling apart around us even yet today. Now Zechariah begins during Haggai's message. Haggai was a very short Prophet. I don't mean like Bildad the Shuhite. I mean, he didn't speak very long. He spoke from the second year of Darius, the sixth month, the first day, through the ninth month, the twenty-fourth day. So under four months was his entire prophecy. Now, Zechariah began in the eighth month, as you see in Zechariah 1.1. In other words... If you date it back into the book of Haggai, he began his prophecy between Haggai 2.9 and 2.10. So he began speaking after the prophecy of the glory of the latter house, as vocalized by Haggai, and before 
the message about separating the clean from the unclean, which follows right after he says he will rebuild the church there. And he begins with a similar message. We'll see that in just a moment. Haggai asked, or told, the priests to separate the clean from the unclean. Zechariah puts it a little differently, and to paraphrase, he says, will we be included in this remnant, or will we not be included? And gives a very strong warning, obedience being the key. Now, interestingly, Zechariah began in the eighth month, right in the middle of Haggai's message, but he only gave a six-verse, I guess we'd have to call it a sermonette, or maybe this is just distilled and boiled down, Maybe he gave a long sermon. I don't know exactly how he did it, but we only have the essence of it, verses 1 through 6 of Zechariah 1. And then he stops for between three and four months and doesn't take up preaching again till the 24th day of the 11th month, as you would see down in verse 7. Now let's understand and analyze what the first six verses of the book of Zechariah are all about. Now, understand the context. We're talking about the rebuilding of the church now. If there's anything that we, I think, have been learning in these minor prophets, is that they are all written for the church today. They will also be able to be preached again by the two witnesses to the physical nation of Israel, because it, too, will be scattered. But right now, spiritual Israel is being scattered. So this message is to us today. And once we get into Zephaniah, and particularly Haggai and then Zechariah, the message turns directly to the church with very little reference to the physical peoples of Israel at all. Because he's talking directly of the temple of God here. Now yes, uh, physical, the physical nations of Israel will be in the millennium included in spiritual Israel. So... Even this message, to some degree, will overlap into the millennium and the return of Christ and the glorious temple in the millennium. But meanwhile, we're talking about the temple that we are the living stones in, whose body we are, as Paul put it. So this is to you and me. This is not to some ethereal somebody somewhere. It's to us. The Lord has been sore displeased with your fathers. Now, I think this goes back to our ancestors in ancient Israel, and it carries forward to some of our fathers in worldwide. Herbert Armstrong was our father in the faith, but there were others who preached and taught us as little children as well, whom we might in a broader sense term our fathers, evangelists, and so on as well. Therefore, say you to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, same word, same title that Haggai used 17 times, I think it was, Turn you to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will turn to you, says the Lord of hosts. This is a theme we have seen over and over in this series in the prophets. Turn to God with all our hearts. Turn to me, he says, over and over. We have something to do here. Be you not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Third time he uses that title. 
He is speaking as the Lord of hosts, the Almighty God. So we cannot take this lightly. This isn't sweet Jesus talking to us here. This is the Lord of hosts. Turn you now from your evil ways. Now this is very much the message that Haggai gave us in the first few verses. Consider your ways. Take stock. And from your evil doings, but they did not hear nor hearken to me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? I have overtaken my margin in the King James here. And that fits better than did they not take hold of your fathers. Well, they did take hold of them. They wrung their neck. They caused them to die. But they, the words of God overtook them. Remember the blessings and cursings chapter? God said, if you will do this, I will bless you. If you do that, I will curse you. And they did that. And they were cursed. And they died. Because they would not listen to the prophets. And they returned and said, like as the Lord of hosts thought to do to us, according to our ways and according to our doings, so has he dealt with us today. Israel has always stoned the prophets. What did Christ say? How often would I have gathered you like a hen does her chickens, or her chicks, but you would not. And I'm here to tell you that only a remnant of the church, roughly 10%, and maybe even less, Isaiah 1.9, a small remnant, will hear. The prophets that God is going to send to us today. God is going to send us two witnesses. Witnesses against the church in one sense, who will then turn and witness against the world. This has to be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses, and God has chosen to do it through two, according to Deuteronomy. That's the law. This judgment cannot come without two witnesses. Now, some of you don't know that Zerubbabel and Joshua are the two witnesses. I won't take time to prove that today, but next week, God willing, we'll talk about Zechariah 3 and 4, and the scriptures themselves will conclusively prove that that is true. So I don't want to get too far ahead of the story here, because we, need to, we have enough on our plate with Zechariah 1 and 2 today without getting into that in detail. But understand, that when God talks about the rebuilding of the church here, the latter temple that has to be put back together out of the dregs and the ruins and the scattering of that which we have seen scattered before our very eyes and have been a part of, most of the church will not listen. Only a remnant of that which was worldwide. Counting dogs, chickens, fleas, and everything at the feast, we had upwards of 140, 150,000 people at, at its largest. All of those were not converted. Some just came along for the ride, you know, let's take Grandma to Valley with us or wherever. So I don't know how many actual baptized members there were, but if you break it down to 10% or a small remnant, I think the maximum of people we're talking about who will get the message at the end is 15,000. 
and it may be more like 7,000 if the words of Elijah and Paul have anything to do with it. That's why Zechariah gives the warning here. Be not as your fathers who would not listen. This is a very stern warning to us to hear what Haggai has to say, to hear what Zechariah has to say. And for that matter, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and the rest, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and so on. Don't ignore this. Now, there's a lot of detail in the prophecies, but the message of the prophecies overall, I think, can be distilled to one sentence. Turn to God with your whole heart. That is what God lays on you and me. Because we were not wholehearted. And one of the reasons 90% of the church will not hear the message of these prophets that God has sent, I'm speaking of Haggai and Zechariah, and ultimately of the two witnesses, is because they have a bias already in place that cannot be penetrated. And that is, I'm a Philadelphian, therefore I'm already okay What's this turn-to-God business? Until that bias is pierced, they will not hear this message. But Zechariah doesn't pull any punches here. He's pretty plain about it. Be not as your fathers. Now, what's bad about history? It tends to repeat itself. We as human beings follow the same pattern. They have never liked the prophets. I say they. The people of God, ancient Israel, and the church today. We don't want to hear hard things. We want to hear smooth, soft things. That's prophesied too. But I think God is pretty clear here and uses Lord of hosts several times to get across to you and to me that I need to repent and turn to God with my whole heart. This isn't a message to someone else. This is a message to the church today of which I am a part, and which you are a part. And I think we'll see that we cannot afford to take this lightly. But this is a very serious warning from God through Zechariah. And Yahweh remembers God remembers Israel in the wilderness. God remembers Korah. God remembers those who rejected Christ. God remembers those who rejected Peter, James, Paul, and John. God remembers the history of his people very well. And he says that most of the church is doomed to repeat that pattern all over again. Does he make himself clear here? Nine out of ten will reject the prophets that he sends to us of the church today. Will I, will you, be one of those who listens? Then Zechariah shuts up for a couple of months. Maybe for emphasis, I don't know. But the people ignored them, and they reaped what they sowed. That's the point here. 
captivity, cursing, and death followed the rejection of the former prophets, and it will also follow the rejection of the latter-day prophets. Because God's people still are hard-hearted. And most, and it hurts me to say this, most of us are going to go into the tribulation. With physical Israel. I hope it's not you. I hope it's not me. But if we don't individually repent and turn to God with our whole heart, it is going to happen. Jesus Christ is not going to account us worthy unless we have turned up the heat and become zealous and excited and tuned in to what he is doing. That's why Haggai tells us to consider our way, and Zechariah tells us not to be as our fathers. Now, after this stern warning, we'll skip down to verse 7 of Zechariah 1, and he changes directions here. This has been somewhat an enigmatic section, the beginning of, uh, well, let's say verses 7 down through well, for that matter, the rest of the chapter. But I think if we understand it in the context of the church, it becomes much clearer what he's talking about. So, chapter 1, verse 7, On the twenty-fourth day of the eleventh month, which is the month Sebat, in the second year of Darius, same year that Haggai spoke, second year of Darius the king, came the word of the Lord to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, I saw by night, so this is something in the darkness, and I think that there may be a parallel here because I think today most of the church is still in the dark about what is happening to the church and what is now about to transpire in the church. It goes back to that bias I talked about, among other factors, sin being one of them, and lackadaisical Laodicean approach, but to that mindset that I'm a Philadelphian. Now, maybe we were in the 50s and 60s, maybe into the 70s. Maybe we were Philadelphian. But once a Philadelphian, always a Philadelphian? Not necessarily. God became upset with what we perceive to have been the Philadelphia era under Herbert Armstrong. Why? Because we thought we were A-OK. We thought, we thought we were rich and increased with goods, and we're in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And he said, that is not so. You have become weak, lackadaisical, lay it aside. So a leopard can change its spots. And I think that we have to get past the denial I am a Philadelphian, so it doesn't apply to me. Because I know, for one, that it applies to me. I was not what I should be. And I know that most of the rest of the church was not what it was supposed to be. The curse causeless does not come. That's all there is to it. So there is cause for what has happened to the church today, and most do not understand it. And I think that's why perhaps God sent this at night. 
people that walk in darkness have got to see a great light. The light has to come on, in other words. We have to grasp why it is that God is doing this to us. And I think we've covered that a great deal in this series, so I won't belabor the point at this time. But this fits the context of what we've already been understanding. Now, to go on. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him were there red horses speckled and white. Well, this doesn't perhaps make a lot of sense to us, but let's understand the symbolism here a little bit. What is a red horse? If you go to Revelation 6 and uh, various other places, you will find the red horse basically means war and blood. So here is apparently either an angel or Jesus Christ, as I think we'll see, riding on a red horse. Now, the commentaries are a little divided on this. Some think that the red horse uh, uh, symbolizes God spiritually destroying the church, the sword of spiritual pestilence and disease and so on that has been wreaked on the church. And perhaps there is a certain amount of uh, truth there. Most of the commentaries seem to indicate that this man on the red horse is coming to save the church from her enemies. And that may very well be the major meaning here. There was no doubt that we have had the sword put to us, spiritually speaking, and famine and pestilence and all these other things that will apply to the nation soon. So we have the red horse, which I believe to be an angel or Christ, perhaps Christ directly, among the myrtle trees. Now, why does he say the myrtle trees? All right, let's understand myrtle trees a little bit. Uh, this is from Nelson's Bible Dictionary. Myrtle, an evergreen tree with dark, glossy leaves and white flowers. The leaves, flowers, and berries of the myrtle were used for perfume and a seasoning for food. Now, this should remind us of some things God says about his saints. Clothed in white, pure. Uh, we were each a little white flower, I suppose, years ago. And we go up as a perfume in the nostrils of God, if we are righteous and holy and as a seasoning in the spiritual food that is in the Bible. So we see a close parent, a parallel here. The myrtle tree had a religious significance for the Hebrews and was a symbol of peace and joy. Well, the latter temple is going to be peace and joy, we find in many scriptures. Queen Esther's Hebrew name meant myrtle. Queen Esther, or Esther as she was before she became queen, the whole book of Esther is a type of the church at the feet of Boaz who gleaned. She was not part of the main harvest. The main harvest was taken and Esther, or Myrtle, was content to have to glean in the corners of the field. If that isn't a parallel of the church today, I don't know what is because most of the church has gone elsewhere and those who are to put the church back together have to take the remnant or the gleanings. So there's a very strong message in there in Esther, which we don't have time to get into today, but Myrtle and Esther fit very closely together. And here's a, from Ungers, a well-known and beautiful evergreen shrub, Myrtus communis. Uh, you never thought of yourself that way, perhaps. 
with white flowers and berries that are at first white and then turn bluish black. Now, did we start out as little white flowers and we're a white church of God and then sort of turn bluish black? They're edible, although rather too astringent for Western palates. It reminds me a little bit of the American juniper in the West. It's a, it's a bush and produces little blue-black berries. But they will set your teeth on edge if you eat them. So perhaps the myrtle is a cross between witch hazel, which is an astringent, and bad juniper gin. So perhaps that's where we are as a church. <laughs> perhaps we don't sit too well on the palate of God at this moment. That's why he's spewing us out of his mouth. We taste too astringent to God. And rather than being white and clothed in white, which we like to think of ourselves as, as Philadelphians, God says we're not dressed in white but naked spiritually. Scary analogy, isn't it? Now, this is from a the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia adds a little bit in addition to what we've already seen, but it says it's an indigenous shrub all over Palestine, and we are scattered throughout the nations of Israel and the rest of the world for that matter. But listen to this. On the bare hillsides, it is a low bush. Doesn't amount to much and isn't all that attractive for that matter. But under favorable conditions of moisture, down in the valley, where there's a lot of water underneath the ground, it attains a considerable height. Now, do we grow by the water of the Word of God from a little bush as we start out repenting into a plant of considerable size if we have enough of the Word of God? So what happened to the church? We became astringent in taste. We became blue-black in looks. Uh, Jeremiah calls it naughty figs. Isaiah calls it wild grapes. We have a metaphor stew here. But that stew is us. So we have the red horse. We have the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, that is, the river bottom, the valley. These should have the opportunity of growing because they have the word, as opposed to being up on the bare hillsides. A myrtle is mentioned as one of the choice plants of the land, Isaiah 41:19. Are we the apple of God's eye? There's you another metaphor. And, uh, this is what Isaiah 41 says. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. That's uh, where he talks about the seven trees being planted in the wilderness, the seven churches. And one of them is the myrtle. Isaiah 55:13 is one of the prophetic pictures of God's promised blessing. It was one of the trees used in the Feast of Tabernacles, Nehemiah 8:15. Um, on and on it goes. So the myrtle tree is a representative of the Church of God. That much, I think, should become clear. Now, what condition do we see the Church in today, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown said? The lowly condition of the Church. 
as opposed to exalted on a hill or a mountain, we're kind of down in the valley was the metaphor he used, that we're sort of hidden and not much to look at at this point. You know, white flowers in the distance really show up. The little blue blackberries don't show too well. All right, let's go on. And behind him, the red horse, uh, were there red horses speckled in white. Speckled may mean bay. It might be mottled in color. Uh, red pictures blood. The white pictures the glory of winning warfare. And when Christ returns, remember, he'll be riding on a white horse, but with blood-stained garments because of the war that goes on. So that is pretty well established. The commentaries don't know what to do with the speckled and mottled ones. Um, in terms of a type or an analogy, but it said, and this was interesting, it might represent the confusion of the church. And I thought that fit quite well as well, because we are certainly in a confused state now as we face the spiritual sword, and Satan has triumphed in some ways over us. Christ is going to come out victorious before this is over. So, I think that probably the second thought here is, is the major one, that Christ has come to dwell with the lowly church and to gain victory over her enemies. Because here we're not talking about further scattering. The context is of putting the church back together. And without Christ being in our midst, I think we can see that would be a, an impossibility. And that is, as we read on here, I think that that will become clear. Then said I, verse 9, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said to me, I will show you what these be. And the man that stood among the church, or the angel or Christ, answered and said, These are they whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. So these horses represent messengers sent to walk and see what's going on on earth. Uh, remember the analogy there of where he said to Satan, what have you been doing? Well, I've been walking to and fro on the earth, and so on. Well, God sends holy messengers to do the same thing. And behold, all the earth sits still and, and is at rest. So nothing much is happening in a way. And I think that fits very well with what's happening on the earth today. There's no major war going on. We have an ecumenical movement that the Pope is pushing real hard right now. We have uh, the New World Order trying to ecumenize all business on earth and make it a New World Order with everybody having peace, plenty, and prosperity, and so on. Well, I say everyone. I think that they intend to be prosperous themselves, the leaders, and make the rest peasants, but that's a different story. But seemingly, it is at rest. Seemingly, it's upward and onward. Y2K has passed us. Let's party on. Let's put more money into the stock market. Let's party financially and in every other way. I mean, even the Protestants, in that sense, have mud on their face. The secret rapture did not occur. Christ did not return. And maybe even they will say, well, let's party on. I don't know. because the end of the world is not here. I think God has his own surprise party planned at a time the world thinks not. I did not perceive that it was going to come when they thought it would. 
shouldn't God's people, his own church, have a better grasp of these things than the Protestant world and the Catholic world? I would think so. So they think they're all right. And in one sense, in that way, the world is at rest. Now, I know there are little brush fire wars and so on going on all over the earth, but nothing of any major proportion that we would say the world is in a conflagration. So this is the setting that we're in right now. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, there's that word again, or that title again, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you have had indignation these threescore and ten years? Seventy years. Apparently God has had a certain amount of indignation against his church. Now, it's been his church, and that sense it's been the apple of his eye. But you might compare this with ancient Israel, and Israel throughout the ages. It seems that there has always been indignation from God to his people. Because rarely have they ever obeyed in the way that he wished them to obey. Every covenant they ever made with him, they broke. And almost the day after, or the same day, Moses threw the tablets down, headed back up the hill, and partied again. So there has been very, very little over the centuries and millenniums for God to truly be happy about. Just little blurbs here and there. Galatians 4.25. I'll turn back and read that one right quickly. The early New Testament church was in a form of bondage, and Paul talked about it. Galatians, uh, what did I say, 4 and verse 25. He's talking about the, the two covenants here, Sinai gendering bondage. Verse 25, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answers to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. So the church has a certain freedom and knowledge and obedience. But they were still in the captivity of the Roman Empire. They were in that sense in bondage and had to flee from before that in 70 A.D. So here he's talking about these 70 years. Well, what are these 70 years? Does that apply to us today? Is that talking about the church today still? Uh, Jeremiah 25, verse 11. Let's notice a couple of scriptures here, three or four actually, about the 70 years. Jeremiah 25, verse 11. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these peoples or nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So this is talking about when Judah went into captivity. And they were there in Babylon 70 years. And it shall come to pass, when 70 years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that people, says the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolations. This is a prophecy for now. God is going to destroy Babylon. But God's people will have been in bondage to Babylon for 70 years before this occurs. Chapter 29, verse 10. Zechariah. Did, did I say Zechariah? I meant Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah 29.10. For thus says the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall you call on me, and you shall go and pray to me, and I will hearken to you. And you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. There it is again. The church is in trouble today. And we have been for about 70 years here in a Babylonian system. And notice Daniel, chapter 9. Daniel 9. Daniel was very well of Jeremiah. But notice the setting here in Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius is when this was written. Well, Haggai and Zechariah were written in the second year of Darius, only one year later. So they were contemporaries. So Daniel says, in the first year of his reign, Darius, I, Daniel, understood by books, by what books? Those that Jeremiah had written. The number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So at the end of 70 years, Jerusalem would have basically been destroyed. We look at the church today, which equates to Jerusalem and to Zion. Hebrews 12, 22 through 23, you should have that memorized by now. And we see that the church is almost totally desolate. It has been it's essentially destroyed. The best numbers I can come up with now from asking several people who might be in the know is a worldwide church of God. Brace yourself. Worldwide attendance is now between six and 14,000. The lowest number I've heard is six, and the highest number I've heard is 14. And from someone who is still in worldwide, they've said about 12. Additionally, I have heard the rumor that it was either last week, this week, or next week, I forget now, I have to look back, they're having their last meeting in the auditorium in Pasadena. Then they're going to move to a rented hall and take the plaques off the walls of the auditorium which say dedicated to the great God. So that house of the great God will no longer be designated that. That sends chills up and down my spine to even think about it. Now, maybe God isn't there anymore, and they ought to take them down. But it's a sad day when conditions have gotten so terrible that they have to be taken down. That's the sad part of it. So I don't know when the 70 years will end for us, but Daniel wrote this, and if there's any book that is an end-time book, I think we'd have to say it's Daniel. Okay? And then Daniel prayed a very powerful prayer here. I'm not going to read it for sake of time, but this is a prayer of repentance and a plea for mercy that we all should be praying because Daniel was writing to the end-time church. That's us. And he's talking about the end of the 70 years. So I think you see the tie-in here of the end church in 70 years. So when Zechariah talks about it, and he's writing to the church, 
He's talking about the 70 years that you and I, or the end-time church, has been here. This is mentioned again in Zechariah 7.5. We'll get to that eventually as we move on through Zechariah, but he makes another reference to it. So, Judah was in captivity in Babylon 70 years and returned to Jerusalem. That is, a remnant did. Most chose to stay in Babylon. And there's another type that tells you at this end time that most will choose to stay in Babylon despite all the warnings to come out of her, my people. Number two, the New Church, New Testament Church existed in Roman society, which was Babylonian basically, suffering persecution and basically disappearing from sight after about 70 years, roughly 30 A.D. to 100 A.D. Third, the end-time church has been in the captivity of Babylon since its inception approximately 70 years ago, and this prayer of Daniel and in Zechariah 1 as well is a plea for release and escape from the bondage that we live under today. Because he says, verse 12 of Zechariah 1, How long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, the church, against which you've had indignation these 70 years? And the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. Now here's the good news. So once the 70 years is over, God's ire is going to turn. And if we have turned to him, the faithful remnant, hopefully us, I mean, whoever does, hopefully including us, I mean, then he speaks to us with good and comfortable words. So the angel that communed with me said to me, Cry you, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. Now God explains what his attitude has been with the church these 70 years. And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. I could quote you um, Amos 6, verse 1 through 5. Oh, let's run back there just a moment, because it, it fits so very well. We've already been through Amos, but there are flashbacks here. Hosea, Joel, Amos, where are you? Chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion, those who are taking it easy in the church, and trust in the mountain of Samaria, that's like the temple of the Lord, the capital, which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. He talks about the Gentiles and so on, but in verse 3 he says, You that put far away the evil day and cause the seed of violence to come near. Be careful about saying this thing is a long ways off, is the admonition here. Woe to them that are at ease. So he says, I am very sore displeased. I am upset. I am angry with the heathen that are at ease. For I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. So God says, under Herbert Armstrong, I was only a little displeased. It's not that he was totally angry at the church then, and God did bless the church through the 50s, 60s, and even into the 70s. And it began to decline a great deal into the 80s and disappeared uh, into Babylon and Egypt from 86 on. And now it has almost disappeared from the face of the earth as a viable entity or corporation. 
So when the heathen came in, spell that T-K-A-C-H, and others, God became very sore displeased. And it wasn't all their fault, because you and I had become very lackluster and lackadaisical at the same time, and God was not happy with that either. So his whole attitude toward the church <laughs> became very wroth, and hence the spewing including you and me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. So God says, in spite of all this, and in spite of the scattering that we have been through, and the red horse that rode through us, God is going to build it back. He's going to stretch a line on it. He's going to measure it. He's going to prepare it and build it. Now you go to Revelation 11, verse 1, and there he says that he is going to stretch a line upon it. By whom? By the two witnesses. They will do the measuring. They will do the checking. And we'll get to that a little later on. Cry yet, still say, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. So he's not going to give up. He's going to call the remnant together to stir it up, as Haggai puts it. Some people think this is talking about the millennium. No, this is talking about the church now. This is talking about the end of the 70 years when God begins to bless and comfort again instead of spew out. Somewhere in here I was going to talk about how long. What did I do with it? I guess I skipped by it. Now, how long is the 70 years? What is the timing here? When does this happen? I've been in the church now for 47 years, and I have learned that setting dates is a landmine-filled endeavor. And I think we all have. Where do you begin to date it? In 1996, when I first went through Haggai in that sermon, I thought, well, maybe it's now. Because Herbert Armstrong was converted in 1926 to 1927. Seventy years later was 1996 and 1997, and that fit very nicely. Except that this didn't happen then. So you have to keep moving the date up as we go on as to what event occurred, which caused God to start counting the 70 years, you see. Now maybe, and some, to some degree, I was right in 1996, and maybe God inspired that sermon, I hope. Uh, because remember, when Ezra began building the temple, uh, enemies came along and didn't like it, and basically stopped it. There was a hiatus of building for about four plus years. 1996 to 2000, maybe there's a thought there, I don't know. But what are the next significant dates? The church began to be organized under the converted Herbert Armstrong about 1930. That puts us to 2000. Hey, that sounds pretty good. Maybe this will all start now. But then the church was incorporated, as I understand, in 1933. So maybe that's the official beginning. I don't know. Oh, that puts it off another three years. And if that isn't good enough, 
the gospel began to go to the world in 1934. So maybe God starts the 70 years from the time the church became active on the world scene. In other words, I don't know what you in on a secret here. On the other hand, I can't find anything after 1934 which was particularly significant until maybe 1953 when I went to Europe. And I hope he didn't start counting then. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's nigh at the door. And many times God says, woe to those that say it's a long way off. So I choose to believe it's very close. Uh, looking at the history of the New Testament church. So, if I were to venture, I guess I would say somewhere between 2000 and 2004. I'll go out on that much of a limb because it'll take four years before you can prove me wrong. <laughs> As I said, setting dates is fraught with a lot of frustrations. So I'm not setting any date here. I'm just throwing some speculation out as to what were important dates because Zechariah makes it very plain that at the end of 70 years, good and comfortable words are coming and that the turnaround is going to occur because he will yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem, which are types of the church today. All right, verse 18 of Zechariah 1. I guess I better move along here. Then lifted I up my eyes and saw and behold four horns. What is a horn? Well, it's a symbol of power. You read in Revelation, uh, perhaps on a bull or a goat or whatever. Uh, it means that which can goad, that which can hurt, that which can impale. And I said to the angel that talked with me, What be these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Interesting point here. Not only is worldwide uh, with Israel, or let's say Israel as a type, Judah, that is those who split off, I think, and Jerusalem, which is the capital of, of Judah. Scattered all of these. In other words, the whole church is being scattered, not just worldwide, because the treacherous sister Judah also is departing little by little, day by day, month by month, away from their devotion to God and devotion to true doctrine. So all are being and will be scattered. The scattering by no means is finished in those who have split off from worldwide. Because most, frankly, still don't get the picture that it's our fault. And until they can get that picture, God will continue to scatter until repentance is achieved. And as I said before, 90% are not going to until they find themselves in the tribulation. Scary thoughts. Verse 19, And I said to the angel that talked with me, Oh, these are the ones that scatter Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now, who would be the four horns? Well, I don't know whether we can place four names in there or not, but, and I don't like to persecute people individually and specifically too much. I get persecuted probably enough myself. But Paul did not deign not to name those who were false apostles. He said it very clearly in several places. Who had departed? Who were the chief ones who scattered from Pasadena because and made us flee from false doctrine? The Koch would fit, I think. It's an Edomite name. Read Obadiah. Perhaps Stavronides would fit. 
the Greek is mentioned in Zechariah 9, and that Judah would triumph over the Greeks, or thy sons, O Greece. So we have one there, perhaps, that fit, because there was a great deal of wrong doctrine produced by what I call the staff infection. I said, I say, so I'm not liable here. My opinion, so I'm not legally liable. We have some German names from the book of Nahum here as well. Albrecht. I think uh, Ron Kelly, I believe his roots were Germanic. Not sure about that, so don't, I might be mistaken. Um, Schnippert, I believe, is a German name as well. So you've got Assyrians, Edomites, and Greeks there. Now, there are a lot more names of those who went the way of the apostasy, so I don't know whether we can plug four names in here or not, and perhaps it's an exercise in futility to even try, but I want to, you to know where the source is, where the heathen came in, and God became very sore displeased because of the bad doctrine. So these scattered, Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem, under the auspices of God the Father, and Jesus Christ, who said, I have scattered. It's just that they use these instruments, just as God used Satan as an instrument with Job, and yet it was God's project. God said, have you, Satan, seen my servant Job? He's the one that started the whole thing. So God started this on us as well. And then the Lord showed me four carpenters. Then said I, what come these to do? And he spoke, saying, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, speaking of the four horns above, so that no man did lift up his head, but these, the carpenters, are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah, to scatter it. The four horns put Judah back together. Notice that it's singular. It doesn't say Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem here. So most of the remnant, I, I think, most of the remnant is going to come from those who split off, not from worldwide itself, but those who have stayed with it. Because by now, most of those who are still in it have gone back into paganism almost wholesale. Now, there are a few names there that are still coming out who are clinging to the truth, but I, I, I can't see how they're surviving spiritually with that weakened a condition. So God is going to raise up four who will put this back together. Now, if you want to, you can go back to, to uh, Haggai 2, verse 19, where he mentions the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree. These plants are, I think, symbolic of men who will stand up and produce fruit in the church. So maybe the four carpenters and the four plants of verse 19, Haggai 2, are one and the same. I don't know that for sure, but it seems that the parallel is there. So perhaps that... <laughs> lift the lid a little bit on the enigma of that chapter. Now let's go on to chapter 2 in the time I have left. This is the one I wanted to spend more time on, but where does the time go? Why is when I'm listening to a sermon it takes so long when I'm giving one it's over in 15 minutes? I jest. Let me find my notes down here. I got completely away from them. Uh, doesn't matter. <laughs> Chapter 2. I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So that which he wrote the subject of in verse 16 of chapter 1, uh, Zechariah looks up, and now he sees the measuring line. So it's, uh, it's talked about, and then almost immediately it happens. Nice, huh? 
In other words, once the 70 years is over, the talking's done, and God is going to stretch the line on the church. He's going to begin to measure it. Then said I, where go you? And he said, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof, and what is the length thereof, what's left. How much is there? What's the remnant? How big is it? And to lay the foundation for the latter temple. Behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, and said to him, Run, speak to this young man, which was Zechariah. He was a very young man, saying, Here's the message you delivered to Zechariah. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. Now, many people have thought that this is talking about the millennium and the new Jerusalem. But if you want to go back to Revelation 21 and read about the New Jerusalem, which I think we proved in the uh, series on the exclusivity of the church, that the New Jerusalem comes at the beginning of the millennium. And it is a walled city. Walls 144 cubits high. But this is talking about an unwalled city. And it's talking about men and cattle. So we're still physical at this point. And we're still talking about the end-time church. He's just now said, at the end of 70 years, I'm going to begin to regather it. I'm going to reestablish the church. That's what the whole message of Haggai is about, is reestablishing the temple, building the latter temple. Now, if there are men and cattle therein, I don't think this is, can be spiritualized away because he uses the contrast of men and cattle. So it's not like the metaphorical language of, was it uh, Amos, who called him the kind of Bashan who ran out of the breaches. In other words, the symbolism of people as cattle who, when there was a breach in the wall or the corral, they all ran out, which is what happened with the church. But this is a regathering of people, and there will be cattle there. For I, says the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. So it does appear that whether he is visible or not, Christ is going to come as a wall of fire, just as he did as a pillar of fire with ancient Israel as they came out of Egypt. The symbolism is the same. He is going to protect the church. It will not be of our own devices, our own guns, our own knives, our own uh, words that will protect us. We will be, in other words, vulnerable. And that is apart from him. But he is going to be there. Now, I have a lot of scriptures I can tie into this. And, uh, well, maybe we'll get to it here. Thinking about the amount of time we have left. See, Tom's in Africa, so I can... Uh, <laughs> he'll be back and hear this, I'm sure. <clears throat> All right, let's see. I'm, I'm sort of paring down here for a moment. He's going to be rebuild Jerusalem as a town without walls. Now, I have talked through this series occasionally. We've come across scriptures which indicate a regathering, which indicate that God is going to put a church together. And this one falls in line with it. And I want to very quickly review some of those. Remember Zephaniah 2, verse 1, where he says, Gather yourselves. And I made the point that, first of all, we have to gather ourselves spiritual as individuals. Secondly, God is going to begin regathering the church. 
And Haggai carries out that theme very, very well, as does Zechariah here, about speaking good and comfortable words and stretching a line on Jerusalem. But there is a time also, perhaps, and I know there is, when God is going to also draw his people physically together, not just together spiritually as individuals, not just into one organization, but physically together. And I think that that is implied there in Zephaniah 2, along with the other two gatherings, because this seems to bear it out here in Zechariah 2. You can throw in Revelation 12, where the church has to flee physically to a place of safety where she is protected. Uh, we can go to Isaiah 52. I'm not going to turn back to these. We've all we've discussed them before in sermons, where he tells us in Isaiah 52 to shake the yoke of Babylon off our neck, to quit laying down and be walked on, to sit up and take note and to put on our clean garments, go back to being the little white flowers instead of the blue-black juniper berries or myrtle berries. He tells us there, 52, I think it's verse 11, to depart from the unclean thing, to go not in haste, but to go. That has to be physical. Sorry. It is physical. Because there is no instruction in the Bible to go slowly away from sin. That is to be done quickly at all times. Expeditiously at all times. Now perhaps that was partially fulfilled when we came out of worldwide, not necessarily in great haste, as it talks about in Matthew 24, where when it's time to go to a place of safety, those who are in Judea, that is where the spiritual Jews live, and the spiritual Jews are where? 90% in America are told to flee to the mountains. There are no spiritual Jews that I know of in Israel-Palestine. So Judea is where the spiritual Jew is, and 90% of the church plus probably is in America and Canada. Destruction will come from the north. Where is that? Well, Babylon and Assyria were north and east, basically, of Palestine in those days. Where is Assyria today? A little north and quite a bit east of America today. If they're going to rain destruction, rain destruction on America, if they do it by bombs, where will they come from? Shortest route to here is from the north, the polar route. If you fly from Chicago to London, you go over the pole. Now, I know on a flat map it doesn't look that way, but on a round world, that's the way it is. So I'm saying that I believe America, perhaps Canada, is spiritual Judea today. The rest of God's church is scattered around the world just as it was when the original captivity took place. Many had already left Jerusalem and gone into Asia and Europe when the captivity occurred. But most of us are here, and we're to flee to the mountains. That's another subject in itself, and we won't get into that right now. We're getting a little warning ahead of time here, and we're going to see it down in verse 6 of Zechariah 2. Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north. All right, that's, the Assyrian is basically north via the polar route from us today. Babylon was always up there, just away from where God's people were in Palestine. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, says the Lord. So he's referring to the scattering that has occurred to us right now. The whole context here is the church, remember. Um, let's go quickly to the Song of Songs. Here it's talking about Christ and his church. I have no doubt in my mind about that because the metaphor is too strong. That, uh, Song, Song of Songs 2, let's begin in verse 10. My beloved, uh, let's see. My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. 
He says, flee from the land of the north. That destruction which is coming, in other words. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the latter rains come in January, February, March in Jerusalem. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of the birds has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. So, perhaps this flight will occur in the springtime sometime. We've always thought that, around Passover perhaps, because of the typology in Egypt. The fig tree puts forth her green figs, and the vines with a tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, Christ says to his bride, my fair one, and come away. O my dove, that are in the clefts of the rocks, so it's going to be in the rocks and the mountains, and the secret places of the stairs, let me see your countenance, let me hear your voice, for sweet is your voice, and your countenance is lovely. Let's go on to uh, chapter six or 7, it is, of Song of Songs. Verse... Ten, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. I sit at the feet of Boaz, says Esther. And he says to her, Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourish, whether the tender grape appear, and the pomegranates bud forth. There will I give you my loves. So God takes his people to the villages and the fields. And they check to see if this regeneration, this springtime, this regathering of the church is happening. We need to be looking for the signs that God is beginning to pull a repentant people together. Because it probably is not too far off, depending on when the 70 years is up. But that's the typology that he uses. Now we can go to Proverbs 31. I won't turn there. But you'll remember that among all the redeeming qualities of the daughter of Zion, where he tells her there that you excel them all in Proverbs 31, he says the church or the woman goes and buys a field. We just saw fields and villages in Song of Songs 2. If you go to Micah 4, verses 8, 9, and 10, it talks about leaving the city and going and dwelling in the field. In other words, he's either talking about putting the church back together in little fields and villages, all under the umbrella of Christ's protection, or he is talking about the place of safety itself, where he takes his people out to a physical place, and they are blessed there. And you can go through Isaiah 45, or 35 through 50, well, through 60, wherever you want to pick there. And you'll see these blessings returning to the church. And as I showed in a sermon, the last one in the Feast of Tabernacles in Africa, the internal evidence indicates that's the church today, not just the millennium. God is going to begin to bless his remnant again. And that's what he's talking about here in Zechariah. We can also add Isaiah 33. Isaiah 33. Um, he's talking about rising here, says the Lord in verse 10. Now will I be exalted, now will I lift up myself. We're going to read a verse in Zechariah 2 here in just a moment, which says it's time to go to work, I will arise. So Christ is going to take a direct hand in putting the church back together. In the context of Isaiah 33 is verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid, all these things are going to begin to happen, and it's going to scare those who have not repented. The sinners in the church will be fearful. And it will surprise the hypocrites who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire. Didn't Christ just say, I will be a wall of fire around my church? 
Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? All right, here's the answer, brethren. Like it or not, here's who. He that walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he that despises the gain of oppressions, that shakes his hands from holding of bribes, that stops his ears from hearing of blood, and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. Turns off the TV, I guess. Hey, this is real life stuff. Is our head in the Bible or is it in the TV? He shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks, the mountains and the rocks. We read in Song of Songs and, and in Matthew 24. Bread shall be given him. His water shall be sure. Your eyes shall see the king and his beauty. They shall behold the land that is very far off. Zechariah just said, Christ will be there. Don't know whether it will be visible or not, but we're going to read it some more in another verse here in a moment. And he says, you, you see the king and his beauty, they shall behold the land that is, and my margin says, of far distances. Israel can in no stretch of the imagination be called a land of far distances. The United States can. This is Judea. This is whence most of the church will flee from. Some of you might argue with me on that, but we'll see. If I was Fred Coulter, I'd ring my little speculation bell now. Verse 6, Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of, that I've spread you abroad. Uh, flee from the land of the north and I've spread you abroad. Verse 7, Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. He puts some of the onus on us, if this is the correct translation. It, God expects us to begin to get out of what we're in. Maybe there's a time to give up, not, our, not only our spiritual houses, but also our physical houses, as Haggai says at the beginning of the book. Now, there's an alternative uh, translation here, which both Amplified and the Revised Standard use, and their translation is, Escape to Zion, or Flee to Zion, you that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So, deliver yourself, or flee to, uh, is the same actual thought there. God is going to pull his people out, in other words. He's going to take them somewhere. And some of the onus will be upon us. For thus says the Lord of hosts, After the glory has he sent me into the nations which spoiled you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. There's that figure of speech. For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. This is going to be accompanied with great miracles, Jeremiah says that there will be miracles so great that we will tend to forget the Red Sea even. When they came out of Egypt, they didn't know where they were going. They didn't know what route they were going to take. And suddenly they were beset by the Red Sea and thought, we'd be dead men. And it opened at least three miles wide for that many people to go across 5,000 abreast all night long. And this is going to be greater than that. There's some big works ahead. God is going to shake his hand on them. Well, go back to Revelation 12. A flood comes after his people. And God is able to lick it up. So verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, the church. The chosen church is the daughter. We've talked about daughters of Zion. We've talked about the daughters being jealous of the one that God selects there in the Song of Songs. 
So this is the daughter of Zion, not plural. God is going to choose one, and he's going to put the two witnesses over them as the leaders, as we shall show very clearly next week. For lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Lord. So he's going to be there. We can argue whether he'll be visible or not. I do not know. There is precedence for that, because he did come and speak with Paul for three and a half years in the desert. So there is a possibility. And I understand that woman says, lo, he is in the desert, believe it not, and so on. Because he isn't coming as a secret rapture and take all the evangelicals off somewhere. But when he, what is that a corruption of, of what Christ is really going to do? He's going to put his church back together, and he's going to be right in the middle of it. Whether he's visible or not, we'll wait and see. Take a bath and put on clean clothes, that's all I can say. Die in your beautiful garments, O Israel. Isaiah 52.1 And many peoples or nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. So God is going to be, begin to bring a remnant back together. All these scattered ones are pretty small now. And there are three trees that are going to die or be cut down in Zechariah 11. So what I'm saying there is that probably God is going to begin to rebuild the latter temple even while there are other organizations still there. Because if Zechariah is sequential, that doesn't happen until Zechariah 11, where it says he cuts down the three big trees and three false shepherds. So this is going to happen even before the scattering is complete. Verse 12, And the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion in the Holy Land, and shall choose Jerusalem again, not Israel. Worldwide is basically consigned to what? Great White Throne Judgment, I suppose. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. This reminds me of Psalm 119, 126, where it says, It is time for you to work, O Lord, for they have voided the law. It reminds me of Isaiah 33, which we just read, where he says, I will arise and get to work. There are several other references very similar to that in those books of the prophets. But here in verse 2 of chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 13 of Zechariah, that's what he says. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. He's ready to set this in motion at the end of the 70 years. So wherever we are in that countdown, I do not know. We may be in year 66. We may be in year 70. We'll see. But I feel that it is very close. Then he begins to introduce Joshua and Zerubbabel in chapters 3 and 4. So next week, God willing, we will learn much more about the leadership that Christ is going to establish to call.